Hey, this is Mark Kassoff, and this is RPM 45. This week, a guy who got into music only because his girlfriend pushed him to audition for Jesus Christ Superstar. Five years later, he and his bandmate begin a string of seven consecutive top five hits. Here's our talk with Russell Hitchcock of Air Supply. I've watched uh, some of your interviews with uh, Russell, your partner. You guys seem like you have an amazing partnership. We do. You know, it's been 45 years this year and we started together in a production of Jesus Christ Superstar in Australia for two years and we've been on the road ever since. And I'm sure a couple of the ingredients are that we didn't didn't have success early in our lives. So there was very little ego involved between either of us. Graham doesn't want to be the singer and I I can't write songs. So we complement each other tremendously there. Uh, we, we know each other as, as deeply as any, any two guys that work together could. So I know when he's having a good day or a bad day and him for me too. We don't step on each other's toes. Um, and I respect him and I love him as a brother. And obviously he's one of the best songwriters that's ever existed, in my opinion. It seems like you have a lot of laughs. Oh, we do, yeah. We we kind of made an unofficial pact in the beginning that if we didn't like working with each other, we wouldn't do it anymore. That certainly hasn't, uh, by any any means of the imagination, gotten even close to that. I mean, I this this time apart from uh, apart from the guys in the band and the touring environment, and you know, being used to being in a different hotel three or four nights a week and getting on planes that you don't want to at six in the morning and all that stuff. Our relationship on the road is what keeps it all together, and we you know we laugh a lot. We have the same kind of sense of humour. For people that don't know who's English and I'm Australian, so we have that kind of the Commonwealth uh, part of our blueprint. Uh, I mean, I have a great time with him. That's all there is to it. Yeah, it seemed like it. But you said something interesting to me, which is you said you didn't have a lot of success at a young age. Well, we're about the same age, and I know that you guys started having success in the in the 70s. That's pretty young age. Yeah, what I actually meant, I wasn't a teenager when we had success. It wasn't like the Hansons, you know, but I mean, I think when we had our first hit recording, I was 30 something. That's late for a music starter. Plus, I'd never been in music before Superstar. I was in, uh, I used to work in an office before I got into the show and met Graham. So I had no experience in music whatsoever. So you worked in an office, but was it always your goal to be a musician? No. I listened to a lot of music. My dad was a semi-professional singer and my sister sang, you know, so there was always music in the house. But the the music I was exposed to first was Tony Bennett and Frank Sinatra, you know, an English singer, famous guy called Matt Munro. Then it was like Dusty Springfield and, you know, those kinds of things. But it wasn't until I was in in high school and a friend of mine bought me in a uh, 45. For those of you who don't know, that's not a gun. (laughs) piece of plastic very small one um, well you know what my podcast is called rpm 45 yeah, yeah, yeah so yeah. yeah right it's all about the 45 well anyway he bought, bought me in this 45 and he said you might want to listen to it it's a new band uh, called the beatles and he, he gave me the a single for i want to hold your hand and as far as my listening preferences were concerned they changed that day and stayed the same up until now i devoured everything that they released my, my bedroom wall was covered in photos of them. I, I bought a pair of Beatle boots. So I got into music. I was in uh, living in Sydney, working in an office, and my girlfriend at the time said that they're auditioning for singers for Jesus Christ Superstar, that you should go along. And, and I said, why would I, you know, why should I do that? And she said, you can sing. And, and I said, everybody can sing. And she said, not like you. And my experience singing was at parties, getting drunk and singing along with the Beatles or, you know, whoever. 
And anyway, I went along and got, got the part and met Graham and we became instant friends. Within a week or so of meeting each other, we started working on his songs. So life takes funny twists and turns. It, it, it does, you know, but the, the interesting thing was once when I got in the show the first time I sang with everybody or we sang with everybody in, in the cast, it, it just blew my mind. I mean, I, I was, it was like a, I got hit my lightning. I thought, why hadn't I been doing this for a long time before? But any, in any case, you know, she said life, life is what it is and, and you end up where you're supposed to be, hopefully. And uh, that was the beginning of a great relationship and a great career. So you guys got together um, and you initially uh, had a hit in Australia. Correct. Yeah, it was a song that he'd written called Love and Other Bruises, which I think is a great title. We recorded the whole album then in a week. The song was a monster. and In fact, it was our first gold album. We were off to the races, really. We had another hit after that called Empty Pages. And then miraculously, we got asked to open for Rod Stewart in Australia. So we did six shows with him. And after the second show, I think he came back and said, do you guys want to come to the US and open on my US tour? So, you know, who would say no to that, right? We'd been in a band for um, only two months. So we did the, the Rod Stewart tour and came back to, to Australia and we were dead in the water like, like we never existed. And of course, in the U.S. at that time, you hadn't hit yet. No, we, we, we went back to Australia in that downtime that we had a lot of that. Graham wrote, among other songs, uh, Lost in Love and All Out of Love. We got a record deal with a new company because the other one had dropped us. And um, they released Lost in Love, and once again in Australia, that was huge. It just, you know, went straight to the top, and it's my wife just coming in. Hey, sweetheart. Hey, darling. That went to uh, the top of the charts here, and, and it took two years to get to the U.S. before uh, Clive Davis got hold of it, and uh, you, know, you probably know the rest. Uh, I know the rest, um, but the, the version that we got here uh, was not quite the same version that was an, a big hit in Australia. I expressed my uh, misgivings and my, you know, attitude towards that, but it didn't make a difference to Clive, of course, because nothing makes a difference to Clive. When he <laughs> but hey, you know, the song started everything for us on an international basis. And, and every time I hear it now, I love it. So that's, that's, that's water under the bridge now. You know what? I was a radio DJ at the time and I played all of them. What a string of hits. I didn't know this until I started researching you guys that you tied the Beatles for top five hits. We were equal to them in that we had seven consecutive top five songs. But when you put it in the context of their success, well, no, they had the top five songs on Billboard at, at one time. You know, seven consecutive top fives pales in comparison. However, it was a, a stat that we're very proud of. You it's know. still an amazing, amazing accomplishment. Yes, it is. Absolutely. And then there was a little bit of a delay. You had a couple of songs that weren't that big hits. And then you came back with Making Love Out of Nothing at All, which was a number two hit. Right. And uh, that, that was a Jim Steinman song, who, of course, had written for Meatloaf, produced most of his, if not all of his hit records. We met him in New York. He was eccentric, to say the least, in my opinion. And uh, he played us Making Love and Nothing at All. And um, it was about 15 minutes long. So, you know, we said, you can't, we can't do that. It's too long, Jim. So we cut it down to the version that you heard. It became a, a huge hit all over the world. And it was number two in the US because the song that kept us out of number one was another Jim Simon song, Bonnie Tyler, Total Eclipse. We, we were quite browned off that uh, we didn't make it to number one. <laughs> well, you still sold a ton of them, right? Oh, yeah, we did. Yeah, yeah. Now, one thing I noticed looking at your discography here was that your hits were actually bigger in the US than they were in Australia. 
Oh, yeah. yeah. Why do you think that is? Um, well, probably the population's got a big thing to do with it because obviously, you know, at a tenth of the U.S. population. No, I'm talking about rankings, though. Well, you know, there's there's a there's a thing of called, it's called the tall poppy syndrome, and it happened to the BGS. It happened to a bunch of Australian acts where you have success in your home country and you want to go overseas, and whoever they are, they don't want you to go overseas. They want you to stay and be successful in Australia and stay like kind of loyal and insular. So we always said we didn't want to be the most famous band in Australia. We wanted to be the biggest band in the world. So we. Left the country basically in in 1980 and really never went back. And I think we suffered tremendously. I know we did in the media, and that probably has an effect on people and their attitude towards you. Plus, you know, we didn't play shows there live, and people just there's something else to to replace you, no matter what you're doing. You know, if you're good enough. And and luckily, we've always considered ourselves a touring band, and and we can still go to the Philippines or Mexico or Hong Kong and sell out stadiums to this day because we kept a presence and a profile and a, we've always been there. So the Australians were like offended because you kind of went big time? I, I think they were, you know, and I'm Australian, I think we were. Uh, but once again, when anybody sees an Aus- this in Australia, they'll be offended that I said that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> But, you know, it's my, my, my belief and my truth, and, and that's the way I feel about it. I mean, but we went back, uh, I think, last year, and we played uh, at the Sydney Opera House with the Sydney Symphony, which was a crowning achievement for us, you know, starting in Australia, and, and uh doesn't get any better than that or, or bigger than that. I mean, we played to 175,000 people in Cuba in 2005, but being able to play at the Opera House in Sydney with the Sydney Symphony was mind-blowing to me, so, you know... As you know, music is a very fickle, interesting beast, you know, unless you can go with the flow and adapt when you have to and put up with rejection and don't get overexcited about the success, then you're in for a hard ride. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I have to say, you know, I mean, the string of records that you had was amazing. And while it's all going on, what's your experience of that? I mean, it must be like riding a wave. It was, and I've I've said this a million times in interviews, uh, the years that 1983, 83 or 84 whatever it was we were on the road all the time one year we left in february and didn't get back home to australia till christmas so it got to the point and this wasn't taking it for granted or being blasé about it but we'd be on the on the road at three o'clock in the morning driving from somewhere to another venue another venue another hotel and we had a couple of guys on the buses that used to look after us get me a beer you know do that and they would come and say uh wow you know even the nights are better has just made top 10 and we go, oh, great, can you get me a beer? We never had the chance to stop and really enjoy it. I regret that because it was an amazing time for us. And um, it's only when you, you look at the hard formation. In fact, uh, my wife and I just redecorated a room downstairs in our townhouse and got out a bunch of you know memorabilia, some gold records and things. And I have the billboard chart and the record world chart and the cash box chart all on the same big thing. And it was when the one that you love was number one on all those magazines. And when you pass that and you look at that and you go well you know i i did that i was part of that that's the enjoyment now but at the time it was just all you know too fast and too many cities too many countries too many concerts now from a u.s perspective it basically ends after making love out of nothing at all correct and ever since then uh, we've had a couple of hits on the dance charts with with a couple of songs but everything that we we take to radio that's new 
and I have friends very high up in radio in, in LA. I take them new songs. We have a song called I Adore You, if people, anybody wants to look it up, and it's beautiful. Played it for this guy, and he said, it's a gorgeous song. And I go, well, were you going to play it? And he said, no, no, we're not going to play it. Our, our audience, our demographic, they don't want to hear that. They want to hear Lost in Love. They want to hear Here I Am. He said, we've actually made studies that if people turn on a radio station and they don't hear something familiar within 15 seconds, they'll go to another station. And that's really sad. It's sad because people aren't getting exposed to not just us. I mean, you can't get a new Billy Joel, Elton John, you name it. You can't get them played on radio anymore. And I say this to people on radio that we get interviewed in, you know, have you guys done anything new? Well, we've only recorded 25 original CDs. I guess you didn't hear the last 23 of them because you won't play them. So when this string of hits ends, is your attitude, wow, we had a great run? Or is your attitude, damn, it's over? Oh, no, no. no. We, I, never, I never said, damn, it's over. The original stuff hasn't stopped. In fact, I spoke to Graham or a Zoom thing last week, and he's, he said in the break he's written another 25 new songs, so he doesn't stop. And I'm sure in amongst those there are going to be some gems. Whether you get to hear them or not is, is another story. You're still traveling all over the world. Not right now, but you are. Yeah, we did. Yeah, we, we, uh, we did our last date uh, before this all hit in March. But we've, we've toured extensively every year in Latin America, Southeast Asia. Southeast Asia. It, it seems like you're very big there. Big, yeah, huge. We were, I think, the first band to go to South Korea and play a show in 82. Japan was very big for us for a number of years. We go back to Hong Kong frequently. We're up super big in the Philippines. That's one of the places we're going there. You can't leave the hotel really without some kind of fuss. Indonesia, Thailand, pretty much everywhere in that region. And as I said, we're still very, very big in, in the Latin American countries, Mexico, Chile, Brazil, Argentina. Uh, we played, you know, Costa Rica, Paraguay, Uruguay. You throw a, throw a dart on the map down there and with your eyes closed and we played it. And over 100 shows a year. 130. Another statistic I'm very proud of still. Yeah. yeah. Does it ever get old? The travel gets old and the TSA gets old. I guess. <laughs> Used to be so much easier, didn't it? Oh yeah, but um, you know the, the, that's another thing. You you if you want to be successful, you have to do the work, and if you have to do the work, you've got to get there, and you've got to put up with a lot of things that you wouldn't necessarily want to do, and it interferes with everything, your personal life. It's hard, and people that, that go to a show, you know, they go to a show and they see two hours of hopefully entertainment, and then they go home, and you know, they don't realise that a lot of times you're going to get on a bus and drive for 14 hours and play the next night, or get up in, especially in, in, in Mexico, most places, there are two flights a day, one at six in the morning and one at six at night. So you take the 6 a.m. one because if you get there at six at night, it's too late to get everything set up. Then you get there at four in the afternoon, do the sound check at five or six. The ticket says nine o'clock start. The show starts at 10.30 or 11. <laughs> Then you do the show, get back to the hotel at 1.30 in the morning. Then you've got to get up at 4 in the morning to leave again at 6 in the morning to go to the next. But it's, you know, it's, I mean, it went, when you've been doing it as long as we have, it's just part of the deal. I used to travel for my business a lot. I mean, nothing like what you're talking about. Nothing. But I thought that was hard. I mean, what you're doing is, uh, when you're doing it, is incredibly hard. Yeah, it is, you know, and... and uh but it's in kind of becomes part of your DNA. In fact, uh, in the past, if we'd had, a, I think the longest break we ever had before this was like three weeks and uh, everybody was texting each other saying, can't wait to get back on the road and this and that, you know, so 
this this has been an extended vacation and I, I love it but sometimes on saturday i think i should be somewhere else <laughs> do you ever see a point where you're just going to say hey look uh, i've done this enough it's uh, time to slow it down or, or is that uh, far far in the future well we th- we threaten to slow it down every year i think the last two or three years we've worked more than we ever did um, and I'm not at the point now, you know, my body still feels okay. And on one hand, I could say I've had enough now and that's it and look back, you know, 45 years of incredible uh, achievements and, and meeting people I never thought I'd be in the same room with. And on the other hand, I think, you know, it takes me twice as long to get up and go to the bathroom in the morning now because my knees are locking up and <laughs> all those things that happen to you when you get older. Yes, I can definitely relate to all that. Who is your audience now? Another another cliche, it's from 6 to 60, really. We were fortunate enough to have the audience that began with us in the 80s, which was a lot of very young young girls and, and their boyfriends. Then that extended to their families. When they had kids, their kids come and their grandchildren come. So they've been passing the music on to you know the next generation. And also the last four or five years, I think maybe a bit longer, we've had another influx of very young teenagers. We sometimes have meet and greets after the show or it's part of our show sometimes now. And you ask 16-year-olds and 18-year-olds, we don't understand why you're here, you know. And they said, uh, well, first of all, we love the music and our parents turned us on to your music. We've always loved it. But, you know, we listen to this and this and this and this and this, not just you, but we love your music. So that, that's uh, that's who we have. We've we've had people in the audience in the last few years that actually saw us open for Rod Stewart, and we we tend to find that people that come to see us usually st- stick with us. I heard that you have people who come follow you around like uh, deadheads. You call them airheads. We call them airheads. Yeah, they do like that. That's a term of endearment, folks. Well, I want to ask you about another uh, appearance that you guys made, and it surprised me, frankly. I- I'll probably lose my man card for saying this, but I watched The Bachelor with my daughter. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh, when you guys showed up on The Bachelor, I did have to tell her who you were. But how did that happen? Um our manager was approached, actually sitting, having dinner by, by the pool in a res- restaurant somewhere on the road. You know, he said, I've got to take this call, came back and he asked Graham and I to, for a minute, he said, we've been offered to do the finale of The Bachelor. And I don't, I don't think Graham was familiar with it at all. And my wife and I, we're Bachelor pervs. We watch all of it. Oh, you too. Okay. So I don't have to feel bad admitting it. No, we, we love it. So we got to do it and we couldn't tell anybody because it was supposed to be, the, you know, well, it was a live finale. And a lot of people said the same thing. Uh, wow, I can't believe you're on that. That's awesome. <laughs> Yeah. And a lot of other people said uh, in the comments on Facebook, who the F are these guys? Or, <laughs> couldn't they get anybody like younger or more hip? But it was great. And plus, you know, we got to meet, you know, Colton and uh, I can't remember the name now, Cassie. But the, the, the funnest part was we were staying at a hotel quite close to NBC Studios and uh, we went there for a drink afterwards, my wife and I. And she's crazy, crazy than I am. And uh, some of the members of previous casts came into the bar and her two favorite hunks came in. What are their names? Ben Higgins. Ben Higgins. Oh, yeah, Ben Higgins, sure. So, uh, you know, we had photos taken with him and had drinks with him. I was in a hunk sandwich. (laughs) (laughs) Your husband uh, and Ben Higgins, right? Uh, No, no, Jason and Ben Higgins. Oh, okay. Sorry. And, uh, husband had to take the photo. Yeah. <laughs> so that was real fun because we got to talk to them and they were really gracious. And I've kept in touch with Jason a little bit. But, um, you know, Dina always threatens. She says, I have Ben's number. Just be careful. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, I tell people I just watch it to bond with my daughter. You know. There you go. Hey, 
that's that's an easy out right there. So I, I heard that you have a new album with a symphony that you recorded. Is that right? Yeah, it's called The Lost and Love Experience. It's a double CD. One CD is a live concert. The other CD is uh, instrumental versions of the hits and a couple of things. And it was recorded with the Prague Symphony. It certainly wasn't a, we need the money, let's do this move. It was certainly an artistic uh, decision that worked out beautifully. And it's called The Lost in Love Experience. Experience, yes, sir. Okay, great. Well, is there anything I haven't discussed with you that you would like to talk about? I don't think so. I think you've done a, a wonderful job. Thank you. Well, thank you. I've enjoyed talking with you. Me too, man. Thanks to Russell Hitchcock of Air Supply. And thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, there's more where this came from. Subscribe. RPM 45, that's RPM 45, no spaces, is on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, pretty much every podcast platform. I hope you'll be back next Wednesday for another episode of RPM 45.